get you get your you got your new pub, your yeah. sign comes in and it's a goose. You think, oh, I've got a goose, right? We're gonna have to give it a name. Something to do. What should we do for goose? Well, the noble goose, the two-headed <laughs> goose, the golden goose, the great goose, the stinking goose. <laughs> 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 They'll be flocking to that then. To get it, yeah. Branding to get for the win. Was I the only one to to um, giggle childishly at the idea of a soiled night? Apparently, Nimble Dick knows where Sansa is. He says she's at the Whispers, this sort of old, rundown castle. Um, a few miles away. Sounds, made sounds likely. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Shartlive Royals' read through of A Feast for Crows by George R. R. Martin. It's book four of the uh, A Song of Ice and Fire series. And we're going to be reading from uh, a chapter about Sansa, which begins once, when she was just a little girl. Uh, as far as a chapter about Jamie, which begins Lloyd Tywin, Lord Tywin Lannister had entered the city. I'm Matt. How, how does it start, Matt? How did that go? <laughs> I, just, I nearly said Lloyd Tywin. As Lloyd if that was Tywin. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Later become Prime Minister of a reformed Westerosi Parliament. <laughs> yeah, David Lloyd Tywin. David Lloyd um, Tywin. Shit, sorry. Uh, I'm Dave, by the way. Hello. <laughs> yes, hello, Dave. Uh, okay, so um, if you haven't, if you're coming across this for the first time, what we do is uh, it's a podcast about Game of Thrones, but it's about the the books primarily. We do talk a bit about the series as well. But um, if you have read the books, or you uh, you know you've watched the series and you'd like to know more about the books, then this is the podcast for you. Uh, we set a certain amount of the book to read every week, and then we go through that part. We tend to divide each one up into ten parts. So this week, uh, part three, starting with Sansa, once when she was just a little girl. Uh, Dave, no, Sansa. Are you consciously doing that in the voice of Aidan Gillen playing Littlefinger in the TV series? Cause, I don't know. Because oh. it has that like creepy edge on it. Like As a beginning to a chapter, I read this and I was like... There's, there's, there's something a little bit Littlefinger about this. And you've gone straight to the Aidan Gillen indeterminate Celtic accent impression, which I think was very impressive. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I didn't I didn't mean it, but it's uh, it's there nonetheless. A little <laughs> you bit should of be worried, Matt, that that comes out of your mouth without meaning to, because it's a fairly weird <laughs> voice. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Sansa, if, we, if you remember, when we last left Sansa, um, Littlefinger just pushed, um, pushed that uh, Liza out of the moon door and killed her. Um, so, and then he blamed it on that singer Marillion. Yeah, which it's hard to kind of hate him for. George is always doing this, isn't it? Like, sort of, he has somebody act in a completely despicable way towards somebody else who is also completely despicable, and he robs you of all the kind of moral pleasure of hating somebody and liking somebody else unambiguously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so the the problem that they've got now is that they they need to. Uh, Littlefinger and Sansa need to convince the sort of lords of the Vale about what went down in that throne room. Uh, basically, that Merillion killed her, and now the best way of action is to install Littlefinger as Lord Protector. Quite a quite a challenge. This it's quite a hard sell. Yeah, because it's. I mean, at least one of these lords of the Vale is going to turn up and be like, interesting. So, Merillion killed the Lady of the Vale. When you were in a room with him and nobody else was there, and now you say the right way to deal with that is that you become the ruler of this incredibly wealthy part of the country. I, I'm beginning to think, Littlefinger, that maybe all is not as you claim. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so there are two ways they can t- they can actually manage to get this sold. One is that Sansa's got to put in an Oscar-winning performance as a, a frightened <laughs> girl. Well, I was going to say which she's which she's always failed to do in the past, but actually, a frightened girl who makes appalling <laughs> life choices, I think, actually is right in her hit zone. I think that's something that that yeah. she has in her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she does a she does a good job of it here. And the other things that help is that. Uh, Littlefinger brings up this guy called Lord Nestor Royce first to explain what happened to him. And he's the guy who uh, guards the sort of main gate which leads up to the Eyrie, uh, called, uh, is it called the Blood Gate? And um, mm. and also he's had designs on sort of keep it, being able to pass this title down to his kids in the future. And that's something that Littlefinger offers him if he sort of basically reading between the lines he says you know believe my side of the story and you'll be able to keep this uh stewardship of the of the uh, bloody gate in your family for for years to come yeah and also a lot of the lords really dislike marillion already because he's made so many songs up about them and basically <laughs> spent his entire time pissing them all off because he knows he's got the protection of uh, lady lighter <laughs> the stupidest fucking like in a world full of stupid jesters and songwriters, he's flipping up there, isn't he? He's like he's yeah. like that guy. Do you remember sort of two books back where Tyrion Tyrion kind of went and spoke to this guy in some dark corner and tried to get him to not sing a particular song, and the guy yeah. with like with whoever it was that he had with him his muscle, and um, uh, with Bron, and uh, and this guy went, yeah, could do, or I could sing you the insulting song that would drop you right in the shit, hey. As if he wasn't backed into a corner with no power whatsoever, faced with the most powerful man in the country and a massive sellsword. It's a bit like, I'm not certain you've entirely thought through how blackmail works, have you, you lads? They're not... They're they're not in advertising, are they? It's not Mad Men. Yeah, I think it's part of it with with the singers is... I don't know if it's... If George Martin's making a comment about where power really lies and stuff, but... The, the sort of the shaky nature of of power for, for people like um, for, for celebrities in this world um, so these guys these good singers famous singers get a lot of protection because lords like having them around because they give them an extra bit of um, I don't know a bit of flair for their courts and stuff and maybe the singers uh, just misread just how much power that really gives them and when it comes down to it the real power is just just isn't with them and they never they're just sort of at the beck and call of these lords as any other common people are yeah 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 very much very much they have the the, the illusion of influence without actually having influence mm. now um the, the they managed to, to sell this tale at least to this lord nestor royce and there is this offer of making kit this this uh, position that he's got hereditary and Littlefinger signs this and gives it him and Sansa says later on that's quite a shrewd move by him because he signed it and not the little boy Robin who's technically the person in charge because that means if something happens to Peter something happens to Lord Nesteroy's claim now so it's a bit of insurance yeah yeah, he's a he's a canny bastard, isn't he, Littlefinger? Mm. Like I haven't spent very much time around Littlefinger recently, so this is another one where I'm tuning back into what a total bastard this character is. <laughs> yeah, uh, S- Sansa um, also said that 
when she when you in her sort of in her head, she thinks that Peter that there are, that basically Baelish is two people even with her almost like a schizophrenic. He's there's Peter Baelish who's the guy who saved her and is almost like a second father to her, and then there's Littlefinger who's this ske- the scheming nasty side of him, um, and you'd also lump the sort of weird sexual tension which he's creating between a child and him. Um, <laughs> Oh, isn't it? In all of that, and it's almost like he's two different people. Yeah, actually, I think that's well said. And he's he's very comfortable kind of taking on these different personas, isn't he? He's sort of you you get the you get the impression that if you if you pressed Littlefinger on a particular issue that was really really dear to his heart and and, and tried to get him to express an opinion, he he couldn't do it because he would have at least two different hearts wanting at least two different things. Yeah, so, something else that um, uh, comes across very strong in this chapter is just how uh, weak this child Robin is as well. Um, he's he's always sort of crying and sickly. Obviously, he's just lost his mum, which is bad for any child, but mm. um, this is a child who's particularly ill-equipped for that because she's just dominated his entire life. Yeah. Um, what did you make of the chances of... He also has these fits, doesn't he, from time to time, and they've got a sort of carry him away and bleed him which sounds uh, particularly pleasant yeah what do you make of his life chances here now uh, well given that he is a, a human being in Westeros with a certain amount of power who is not in the slightest bit able to exercise that power I would say that he's up shit creek really <laughs> like there's there's too much uh, incentive for people to to do dastardly deeds mm. because it doesn't take power or influence or a lack of your own power to to sort of turn you into a target in Westeros you just need to be alive and breathing yeah so that 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 could i mean he's, he's still alive at this point but i mean it, it's hard to see um i don't know a situation in which he ends up as a sort of uncontested ruler of that region but at the moment you know he's got peter batting for him so what could possibly go wrong <laughs> Um, move on to are, chap- what could possibly go wrong indeed yeah. Yeah. let's just brainstorm around that for about half a picosecond <laughs> to come up with 12 really horrible ways Littlefinger could fuck him over <laughs> if I was Robin put it this way I wouldn't be playing near the moon door anytime soon <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay next up is a chapter called The Kraken's Daughter Dave if you thought we were done with prologues <laughs> <laughs> Can we still legitimately call it a prologue when it's happening in the middle of the book? Is this just did George just go sort of? Is this like Arrested, the fourth series of Arrested Development, where they wanted to make a movie but they realised they were going to have to spend an entire series just telling you what everybody's been up to since? So they decided to do that. This is what a feast for crows is: prologue after prologue. Yeah, well, it's we keep obviously there are a few named characters that we in the last the first three books. Every, there's just a named characters all the time and then you see them through different characters' perspectives mm. in this one it seems to keep just dropping in new characters but not sort of the name of them just a weird other name as if it is a prologue yeah um, we'll see them we'll see them reappear throughout but this is the next one it's the Kraken's daughter will we see them appear throughout because I mean th- what I think when I see a title rather than a name is that it's just sort of oh shit now I've got to talk about this probably best go and talk about like you know probably best create another character which mm. feels a little bit ham-fisted considering how tight how tightly plotted and character this has been in the past 
Yeah, these chapters, um, sort of the weird titles, do appear through. I mean, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure the the, the, the second half, but mm. as far as I've read to in my reread, um, they keep popping up. So mm. get ready for more. Mm, mm. Um, so the, the Kraken's daughter is uh, Asher Greyjoy, so the uh, you know Theon's sister. Hey. Um, yeah, and she's sort of getting together her strength to make a claim for for the Iron for not the Iron Throne for the uh, King of the Iron Islands mm. or Queen of the Iron Islands if she wins. Yeah, uh, she wants to take over for where her dad left off, basically Balon. Um, this isn't going particularly well. She's in this massive hall, um, in the, the which belongs to this family called the Har- Harlows, who um, are particular supporters of yeah of uh, of Asher. And there aren't that many other other families there or other warriors there. And she's thinking it's not looking <clears throat> it's not looking too good. Um, so apparently, uh, Balon's wife, her mum's also there, like shut up in a tower somewhere. And she's a bit of a ghost of herself after sort of losing a lot of her kids. Yeah. Just this sort of sad little, uh, little little beat to the whole thing here. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, the, the thing is, she came back. She's come back from the north where she's been, sort of, running amok, and she she captured. I think it was Moat Kaelin. Oh, not Moat Kaelin. Uh, Deepwood Mort, which belongs yeah. to the Glovers. Yeah. And um, she's got a couple of captives from there, and she's treating them really like quite well. Yeah. Like there's this bit of what one of the, the baby was uh was dying and she went and got this goat to milk to sort of save it and stuff. So she seems to be it seems surprisingly kind hearted of uh, such a such a character that's been so tough so far. It does, doesn't it? And particularly when she's making a pitch for to be the first ever female ruler of like the bastards bastards, you know, the the least yielding or kind of warm people group mm. in the whole of Westeros, which is a crowded field. Um, mm. it's, it's kind of really weird that she's doing that. And Right, okay, there are two things here. The first is that she, there's a good political reason for her to need to do it, right? Like, she wants... She needs something from the Glovers, I think. Or, mm. she like, she needs this heir to stay alive or whatever it is, right? So, <clears> I mean, cool. Yeah. So, good reason. Fair enough. Um, on the other hand, you can... Is it just me, or can you almost hear George going... Shit, I've got to make the Iron Men relatable. I've got to, I've got to, in not very many pages, I've got to make them people that we respond really well to. And so far, I've only really been having fun with them as like the most like bigger bastards than Blackadder sort of thing. Like, yeah. how the hell am I going to do this? Uh, I, she'll be nice to a baby. That'll do. It's a sort of politician's <laughs> answer, isn't it? <laughs> Kiss the baby, and everybody She's will like you. Kissing babies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's part of it. She's hitting the campaign trail here to become queen. Amazing, <laughs> brilliant. We're going to fight this babies. king's boot on issues, not personalities. <laughs> Yeah, I think it'll all come crashing down for her when she's caught on camera saying something choice about uh, some supporters. <laughs> Why did you have me talk to those people? They were just ignorant, bigoted old people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which ones? Why all of them. They're spend... all fucking bigoted. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I have to spend so much time on a boat with the Glovers? What's wrong with the Glovers? They're just such bigoted individuals. <laughs> <laughs> Your microphone's still on, my lady. Micro what? <laughs> and someone's chasing the glovers down the road saying, what did you make of this thing? <laughs> well, I thought she was really nice. She gave me goat milk and everything. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm absolutely, I'm not voting for him. Now, Do you should... think you're a bigot? Well, no, I don't. 
<laughs> Should we just do a little footnote here, particularly for those of our listeners who might not remember, <laughs> who might not even be British at all. Um, this is, I mean, go and look up Gordon Brown and the word bigger and you'll find out what's what. This is from, um, this is from the 2010 yeah. election. <laughs> It's campaign trail disaster. Campaign trail um, disaster. For for a woman whose whole kind of uh, her whole ambition is to be as harsh as possible. I find that yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so so you think we're going to get to the king's moot, and in the middle of it, when she's making her claim, someone's just going to play out the audio of her calling <laughs> <laughs> on an iPhone. Yeah, everybody will be confused. Microphones, iPhone. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Anyway, yeah. So the she's been surprisingly the the the, the, the point before we rocks it off on a tangent is she's uh, she's been nice to the Glovers so far. Mm. Um, you write about this this issue with her um, being a woman though and being perceived as weak because her mm. uncle says he advises her not to go to Old Wick where they're holding this King's Moot because she, he thinks she just can't win and a lot of it is because she's a woman. Yeah. And she thinks this is rubbish and says so. Mm. Um, he, he offers her a castle to, and says, you know, just just settle for that and stay here. And she's like, no, I'm, <laughs> yeah. going, I'm going to Oldwick. Um, she also bumps into a guy called Triss, um, mm. who is an old flame. Uh, they used to muck about together when they were younger. Mm. And um, he's obviously spent the years apart pining for her. Yeah. And waiting for the day when they're going to reunite, and she clearly isn't quite as into she, him as she has spent the years like. since um, <laughs> seducing her older brother as a joke. So, <laughs> divergent paths is what we're saying. Yeah. She doesn't bring that up here, surprisingly. I was going to say that. Because George is desperate to make you empathise with her, and there's not very many good ways of doing that. <laughs> yeah. But the the only way things come out of this are a this guy seems sort of uh, completely loyal in a sort of love struck yeah um, way. So God, she's, she's could, got an ally flip, there. Though. Could be a case of the the lady lies her errands. Could, could go could go quite wrong. Could be. Um, and also, he says that um, the news from around the Iron Islands is that Euron is doing quite well. Who's the the eldest of Balon's brothers? So sort of her uncle. Um, and that looks like the power's swinging that way so we shall see yeah. but it's just um, the continuing move towards this massive confrontation this political moment where they choose their own king which should be quite interesting yeah yeah it should be and I think like for all that I'm ripping on this I think it's quite well written that it makes me care about these islands whose previously their role in the plot has been to be you know totally unyielding almost kind of uninterestingly violent and nasty um mm. You know, uh, so yeah, I'm, it is well written. Like, I find it quite interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to see a part of Westeros or a part of any of George Martin's world that's actually making at least some stab towards doing some form of democracy or um, sort of chosen by the it? people. Yeah, government. but I mean, but maybe that's the kind of democracy that comes forth from having such a group of ruthless bastards as your electorate, in that you really mm. can't get away with being like, well, I have the towers and the horses and the swords and the money, so you all can fuck off. Because, you know, they mm. seem to have very deeply in their identity the idea that they can kill anybody they like. 
and that mm. strength is everything. And so it's really weird that they they get to democracy through this incredibly fascist like idea of like the strongest must win and part of the strength you have to display is being able to sway a king's mood. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the rules aren't quite strong enough to support someone. For example, uh, were Tommen to be in this system, he wouldn't stand a chance of being king. Be eaten alive on toast, um, wouldn't he? Yeah, so it it does it does a good job of keeping weak kings away, doesn't it? I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, for all these other issues, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which we won't list. Yeah, casual we'd bloody be murder. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, we move, then we move, speaking of King's Landing and Tommen, we move on to Cersei. Back in the old KL. And, KL. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lovely place to go for a holiday, I've heard. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's Tommen and Marjorie's wedding day. It's wedding day number three for Marjorie Terrell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what amazes me is that we've had no kind of introspection from Marjorie at all about whether or not she might be the kind of common factor in all these people dying. She's definitely not sus- uh, superstitious, is she? Otherwise, she would have been like, you know what? Maybe I won't get married a third time. Seems seems almost like taking the piss, doesn't it? Probably won't get married. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cersei's a bundle of nerves at this time because obviously this is where Joffrey died at his wedding mm. so it's a much smaller affair she's got guards everywhere um, she's got Boris Bloat tasting the food <laughs> <Poor bastard>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and she's snapping at everybody as well isn't she, she you can just feel this this tenseness around her mm-hmm. yeah yeah very much um, she's also losing um, a lot of battles here in terms of power um, they're just little things that are, that she she just isn't winning, and um, I don't know. I, she, she you can I don't you can sense an unease from her because she feels that these things are adding up. Uh, for example, you know, uh, Marjorie wants to spend the the wedding night with Tom and yeah. Oh, and uh, and Cersei says, "Oh no, they're too young to sort of be to, to sort of share a bed together, but they're going to be sharing the wedding night bed together because." She's lost that argument. She also wanted the um, Lannister, like Tommen, to put a Lannister cl- cloak around his wife during mm. the, in the wedding ceremony. Yeah. But um, she lost that battle. It's going to be Baratheon one because that's you know the real house colours of the king. Yeah, it's just all these little things that you think if she really is as powerful as she hopes or expects to be, she wouldn't be sort of losing these little battles. Yeah, yeah, very true. I also think there's a little interesting thing in the um, the. Maybe this is her. Like she's been extraordinarily good at manipulating things to go the way she wants them to go for like a long fucking time. But she's kind of. I think this is part of her sort of descent into madness thing, where like she's reached this like fevered pitch of manipulative willfulness, and that's all she is now to everybody around her. So they've started to ignore her for it. You know, mm. where it used to be, no, of course it will be a Lannister cloak, we've got all the money, and, you know, and that would, everybody would be like, oh yeah, right. Now she's kind of a fixture as the mental dowager queen, and yeah. I find that, like, I think that's, maybe that's what we're seeing here, is that all of these people kind of being like, yeah, yeah, Cersei, whatevs. They're no longer waiting to hear what she says, because they always know she's going to say no, and go for her own mm. plan. And no matter what, you know, power isn't about that. It's, you know manufacturing consent 
Noam Chomsky, ladies and gentlemen. Noam Chomsky making his way into a discussion of... uh, (laughs) (laughs) How pretentious is that? Yes. But she's manufacturing consent badly. (laughs) That's what she's doing right now. Yeah. Um, Part of the reason for her paranoia is obviously what happened to Joffrey. But also, um, she remembers this... There's this experience that Cersei's had when she was a child where she went to see this uh, this witch in a wood somewhere to mm. get a fortune told. And it's affected her entire life because the fortune was really bad. Yeah. And one of the things she was told was that she would be queen one day, but only until a younger and more beautiful version of her or younger and more beautiful queen came along to cast her down. So yeah. she's always, always, always been on the lookout for that. And, and it doesn't um, strike you this that is what been... she sees Marjorie as. <laughs> you see, it doesn't strike me that she was the most balanced person before she got this. I mean, <laughs> she was. I think at the point where she got the prophecy, she was already sleeping with her twin brother. So this is sort of hmm. And then she goes and sees somebody <laughs> who like gives her all sorts of supernatural reasons to be fucked up. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just it's you can. It, it, what I'm seeing here is George Mine arrange Marjorie Terrell and Cersei Baratheon like a two-year-old playing with like toy cars you ever seen that two-year-old boys just have a toy car in each hand and they just go and just smash them together recreating a car crash right and that's exactly what he's doing here only with monarchs and you've got to admire his chutzpah haven't you (laughs) yeah um there's there's some other things around here as well with uh cersei uh, continuing to sideline her uncle now, Kevin Lannister. Mm. Um, she she hasn't made him Lord of uh, Casterly Rock, which she would have expected um, as a sort of a as a I don't know payback for turning down the the hand of the king position. Mm. Um, and also, th- there's this rumor of uh, the Hound, who was last seen dying sort of in the middle of a wood mm. and being left by Arya, uh, joining up with. I mean, this is very odd. He's joining up with the Brotherhood Without Banners and he's been involved in a massive sort of rape and pillage of uh, of the salt pans, which is a part of the country, which yeah. seems very weird, A, for the Brotherhood Without Banners to be doing that kind of thing, yeah, and B, for the Hound to be in a part of it as well. Weird, isn't it? But then again, we've seen the Brotherhood Without Banners have the capacity to resurrect people. So, I mean, has this happened, or has, has like, somebody got the power of resurrection off of Thoris of Mir? or whoever it is, and mm. kind of gone rogue with it. Sort of got a little bit less Robin Hood and his Merry Men and a little bit more, I'm going to fuck you up unless you give me all of your money, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. 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 Well, he, he, here's an idea as well. When um, when Beric is brought back, he often says that he loses bits of himself, doesn't he? Mm. Um, so it could be they've brought back the Hound, goodness knows why, but they've brought him back. <laughs> Seems and- like he tells some good stories along the route, nice. <laughs> yeah. che- you know, cheery presence, good for morale. Go on, do yeah. it, Thoros, do it. <laughs> yeah, but they bring him back, and the bits of sort of humanity that we've seen, the glimpses that we saw when he was with Arya, is the bit that's just been chipped away. What, you mean because he was closest to the surface? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He kills the leaders, and then he's the he's the the badass in charge, and oh, they start going on these massive wishes. That that's could be the that's rolling the dice and it coming up snake eyes, isn't it? Can you imagine? They're like, well, should we resurrect him? 
I mean, he's a badass, isn't he? I mean, we do need some more badasses knocking around. Yeah, but he's a fucking psychopath. Yeah, but you lose a bit of yourself when you get resurrected, right? So what are the odds of him losing the only bit of humanity he had to begin with? Come on. I mean, what's that? 100 to 1? Let's do it. Go on, Thoris. Get in there, mate. And then he comes back up and just looks at everybody and goes, I'm going to fuck the fucking lot of you. <laughs> Shit. Fucking hell. It's gone wrong. Yeah. I can imagine him just, uh, like, they, they wake up the next day and uh, like someone like they feel his hand on his on the shoulder. They wake up, boss, what is it? And it's the hound like, oh shit! Like, <laughs> they're going red in the salt pans. Anyone who doesn't, I'll rape your fucking cars. <laughs> and just look looking over to the guy who sort of argued to resurrect him. Like this is what happened. This you is absolute arsehole. <laughs> you had you to be different, didn't you? <laughs> you had to play devil's advocate. Now look what you've done. <laughs> Another fine mess. <laughs> anyway, that could be an explanation, but it, it does seem a very strange um, rumour anyway that's knocking around. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there has been some disgraceful travesty of uh, um, of an attack on innocent people in this little region, but the circumstances and the details are obviously quite hard to grasp at the moment. Maybe we'll find out more later. Mm. Um. There's also this continuing business with Lady Merriweather, who's this. Uh, it's one of the one of the ladies that's sort of in Marjorie's court, and she seems to be offering to be a double agent and inform for Cersei. Yeah. And Cersei's using her to to she thinks feeding her information that she wants Marjorie to find out because she's assuming that she's been spied on as well. Yeah. It's all very sort of. Plots within plots here, isn't it? Dangerous business on Merriweather's part as well. I mean, would you look at the the forthcoming storm of knives between Cersei and Marjorie and go, yeah, I'm going to get involved in that. It's, it's, like, it's like somebody choosing to be a double agent in the Cold War instead of getting compromised by both sides and having to do it because they can't escape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's um, it's not the one you sort of think. Right, I think this is the kind of thing that I can turn to my advantage. I'll probably quite do easy, that. Quite yeah, I reckon I'm, I reckon I'm better at politicking than these two professional politickers. Pull that yeah. off, not a problem. <laughs> so, Cersei draws a parallel between herself and Jamie, um, and Marjorie and Sir Loris in how similar they are. Oh, that's <clears> what interesting. You make of that? Yeah, mm. I mean, I can see, <laughs> I can see that. Although, obviously, I hope that the parallels don't run too far. Um, mm. But, yeah, I can see that. I'm just... I haven't seen enough of the interaction of Marjorie and Loris, actually. I was thinking this when I saw... Because I saw... Was it episode one, I think? Episode two of the of series five. Where there's actually mm. a conversation that takes place between the two of them about who they're going to marry and, like, all the political realities of that. And they're both, you know, as as kind of cynical and dismissive as you would expect of the whole idea. Yeah. But it was a conversation which I don't think I've ever seen very much of in the TV, in, sorry, in the books. Um, yeah. And I feel like that could be quite an interesting little interaction, but, you know, who knows when we're going to get that, right? Yeah, it's hard not to let Marjorie's character in the in the series inform your thoughts and her in the book yeah. because there's so, there's so little of her in the books. She's just yeah. this sort of name that's knocking around, really. Um, I've, she very rarely even appears, mm. um, so it's hard to even know whether she is scheming or anything from her part, or whether she's just as much of a sort of pawn of the Queen of Thorns as as Tommen is for uh, for Cersei, mm. um, because it's always seen through Cersei's eyes, isn't it? And she always sees her as a manipulate um, a manipulative scheming 
adversary. Mm. But we have to always remember that Cersei's massively paranoid as well and a bit crazy. Yeah. So yeah, that just, might not necessarily be true. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we, we shall see anyway. Yeah, but yeah. It's yeah, an interesting the, thing. The Marjorie and Loris thing. I, I, I don't think this happens in the in the book, but in the series, like when she's obviously supposed to be marrying Renly, and Renly's actually in love with her brother, and when they're sort of trying to trying to get an heir, trying to have a baby, mm. he obviously can't get him. He can't get into it because he's gay. Yeah, and she's in the series. She's like, "Do you want to get my brother involved as well?" And that that sort of feels a bit Lannister. Oh yeah. <laughs> so are you are you imagining that she's delivering that line and then being like, "Say yes, say yes, say yes, say yes." <laughs> it could be. Although I think I suppose in the series it's more about how she just there's no holds barred when it comes to power because she is just completely obsessed with being queen in the series. Yeah, isn't she? that's true. Her character. Yeah. yeah. And even like getting my brother involved in. In a bit of uh, in a bit of baby making, um, is like hey, yeah, why not? If it, if it puts me on the throne, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, it's very hard to not to get let all this sort of stuff come into the book and assume that that is what the character is like because you've got to try and just go off what you see in the book, haven't you? For the for the Marjorie character, so yeah. And has she ever been a, a point of view character? She hasn't, has she? No, no. Well, she's hardly even. She hardly even gets many pages actually in the room with someone um, I can't remember the last time that she spoke to someone that's true actually, um, you just read her name a lot right? yeah, and when she does it's just very just very very brief yeah, says what you expect them to say, yeah it's mm-hmm. very hard to get a handle on anything to do with her motives or anything mm, that's weird mm. yeah. um, Cersei has a miserable time at this wedding uh, she doesn't want to dance, she gets really horribly drunk uh, she she basically she she basically acts uh, instead of the drinking side just like a late husband would have done the, how she despised him so much for doing it. Um, but she does have a she does have one fun part of the evening which involves burning the tower of the hand to the ground, which is worth. And she she thoroughly enjoys that. That's no small thing though. I mean that's like burning. Parliament to the ground, like that's supposed to be this massive tower in quite a small castle, right? Or, I mean, it's a big castle, but it's a major part of this big castle, right? Yeah, yeah. And they, but yeah, but she's like, nah, fuck it, burn it to the ground, burn it, <laughs> <laughs> let it burn. Uh, yeah, so so that that that's what she. And then um, to continue in her sort of uh, dist- destruction of her relationship with Jamie. He comes over to say, "Oh, shall I walk you back to your room?" And she's like, "No, um, I'll have Sir Osmond Kettleblack walk me back to my room, please." And she openly sort of flirts with him and sends Jamie on his way. Which, for a, for seeing as Jamie's, as we've seen, he's got this sort of these thoughts going round about Cersei's been sleeping around. This is fuel to the fire for him. Yeah. Yeah, very worrying. Yeah, it's it's, it's all a bit. There's a, there's you you can hear the ominous strings start to rise in the background just a little bit more at this point, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we move on to a chapter called the Soiled Knight. It's another. Should we call these sort of? Should we call these like? like new characters. Log, log, <laughs> log. Mid, mid mid book prologues. Mid logs. <laughs> Midlogs, yeah. Midlogs. Another midlog. Well, speaking um, of which, was I the only one to to um, giggle childishly at the idea of a soiled knight? 
I just I just had this idea of a knight who got caught short in full armour and just didn't have a chance to get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have time to find a bush or anything. <laughs> oh, I've soiled my jerkin. Yeah. Oh, shit. Everybody heard me say that. Oh, oh well, I suppose the question of what my nickname's going to be has been answered. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, said knight is Sir Eris Oakheart, who is... Um, He's one of the King's Guard. He's mm. originally from the Reach, so he's a Tyrell ban, uh, sort of uh, Tyrell man, if you like. Uh, mm. Before he became a King's Guard, um, which is the Tyrells are particularly hate the Dornish people normally because um, they share a border and they're always scrapping. So yeah, uh, unsurprisingly, they don't get on particularly well. So he's not a great guy to have in Dawn, but he seems um, fairly relaxed about uh, Dornish relations as we will see a bit more of in a second yeah um, so he, he he's there basically to guard my uh, Marcella who is uh, the you know Cersei's daughter and mm. the princess and she's currently playing I think it's Kivas Sivas which is a form of seems like a Westeros form of chess yeah with a with Prince Tristan, who's the the Dornish guy, so it's these two. It's sort of uh, building a few bridges, isn't it? But at, mo- at the moment, she's almost as much as a hostage as anything else because of what's yeah. been going on yeah, in yeah, King's very Landing. Much. Yeah. Um, Prince Doran uh, says, as 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 much as admitted to Aerys Oakheart, or admitted in his presence, that he wants to get Marcella away from the um, the capital Sunspear mm. because he doesn't. He, he thinks that. People are so pissed off at the moment after what's happened to uh, the Red Viper yeah. that uh, <clears throat> she she might die. She might get killed yeah. by an yeah. assassin. So, it, so the plan is to move her out to the Water Gardens as soon as possible. Mm. What do you make of Dawn so far? Because we kind of they kind of like parachuted into the middle of this war in the middle of the last book in a sort of like yo. We're Dawn, motherfuckers. Mm. Everybody else is less cool than us. But like we haven't spent very much time with it. Yeah, like, does it is it grabbing you, or is it? Because to me, there's a little bit of me where I'm like, kind of, aha, the insanely overpassionate, unable to manage themselves Southerners, right? You know, (laughs) like, it seems a bit one note at this point. What do you think? Yeah, we're still really being introduced to Dawn, aren't we? So we're just getting a, a a grasp of it. I think the the character of Prince Doran in how. Um, more reserved and thoughtful he is mm. gives a bit more of uh, a bit more depth to Dawn so it's not just a lot of crazy people who are just ready to you know have a fight at the first notice yeah um, because it's funny it's there is that sort of passion and anger and um, the sand snake side of things but it's also married to this idea of them being more civilized and you know treating for example, not murdering children. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's a low bar for being civilised, but you know they, they haven't reached it in the rest of Westeros. Um, Deary me. But they, but, but they have there, because Prince uh, Oberyn was quite good at displaying that when, when he was in King's Landing. You know, He yeah. made those points about... He, he's so enra- Obviously, he's enraged about his, um, his sister's children, his niece and nephew being killed. Yeah. Um, during the sack of King's Landing all those years ago, but he says, you know, that's not the kind of thing that we do in Dawn, you know. Yeah. And and when Cersei suggests that, you know, something might happen to Marcella, he says as much again. He says, you know, little girls are safe in Dawn. 
it's a shame it's not the case in the rest of the world. Yeah. So there is yeah. there, there is a bit of complexity there, but it it does take a bit of work to find. I don't know how well it's really put across, to be honest. Yeah, I'm interested to see it just because I sense there's an opportunity here for it to go to go kind of full Godfather. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, kind of like set high sense of honor, high value of violence, you know, could could go that way. And I, I, I'll level with you. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see a fantasy riff on The Godfather done by um, done by George Martin. I think that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so Eris Elkart's off to see um, a mystery woman. It's one of these ones here where, I mean, the mystery's revealed in about four pages or so. Mm. And I just couldn't be... This kind of mystery that just annoys me because I just want to get on with the story, and um, it's not gonna. You know, we know we're gonna find out who it is. We sort of within a couple of pages because she's just sitting there, and I don't know. I, I just there's lo- there are a few points in the next few pages where that George Martin's very careful not to reveal who it is for no apparent <laughs> sort of purpose. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, just, give, just put a name down so we can actually get it straight and in my head and just follow the... It's yeah. It's enough to work out which new characters are which without adding this kind of stuff as well. He is a bit of a victim of himself here, isn't he? Like, and, and we keep coming across little moments like this through the book where you're like, you kind of feel him tottering under the weight of this thing that he's established. And, and I think this is one of the areas where I'm like... George, is it possible you just forgot? Like, did it did it slip your mind to make the plot clearer at this point, or were you just so in the habit of assuming that everything was impossibly convoluted that you just let it happen? You know, just oh, I'm just, uh, I probably shouldn't name him for some reason. Don't know why. Maybe that's well, Ash. Maybe we're going to get to like six chapters down the line and yeah. be like, oh, what a reveal! What a reveal! But I can't see it happening now. You know. Yeah, maybe. Well, no, he, he reveals it in, in a few pages here. It's Ariana Martel. So oh. I just don't understand why he doesn't reveal it at the start of the chapter. Yeah, that's weird, actually, isn't it? Yes, sorry. Okay, that wasn't what a reveal. That was just shit. <laughs> yeah, what a, what a disappointment. What um, a yeah, disappointment. So it's, Ari- so it's Ariana Martel who, I mean, so many names to try and get your head around at this stage now. But she's mm. the sort of eldest, or the, the, the favourite daughter of Prince Doran. Mm. And it turns out that... Um, Eris is sleeping with her, uh, despite the fact that he's not supposed to sleep with anyone as a king's guard, um, especially yeah. not someone who's Dornish, considering they're almost at war with them. Um, they have quite a good. I mean, Ariana. What did you make of Ariana here? Um, weird. Like <laughs> consistent with her character, like and a, a walking quite a fine line between this idea of like dangerously passionate and also politically calculating um, mm. but I, yeah I just I don't I didn't really I don't really have a handle on her character so this is the, in a way this is one of the first ways I'm kind of getting to know her and it's in the context of mm. this nothing means anything let's shag you know like <laughs> kind of yeah. so I'm like well I don't really know where that's coming from at this point I don't you know it doesn't tell me anything about you necessarily yeah, well, Ariana's got this plot and a plot of the plots. The plots everywhere at the moment. She's got a plot of her own, mm. and the plan is. Um, he, he says she says to Eris, you know, yeah. my dad isn't keen to get Marcella away from Sunspear because he thinks she's going to die. Mm. It's because he thinks she's going to be crowned. The plan is, um, Ariana wants to um, declare that Marcella is now the rightful ruler of Westeros. Um, 
marry her marry her into the Dornish family and then it's basically the plan that do you remember the third sand snake had yeah the sort of the middle ground plan that kind of plan I suppose and mm. she wants Eris to help her make this happen yeah and there's this long because basically he it's quite a long story short he he agrees uh, after a lot of persuading which is both she's very good at debating this Ariana mm. she comes up with some good reasons why Marcella would be a better queen yeah. and why these ideas of honour um, can be a, a, a stupid and are a waste of time if in the yeah. wrong circumstances yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, like, it's basically like that argument that Jamie had when has grappled with when he served the Mad King, thinking, mm. you know, is this really an honourable way to to live out your life? Yeah, um, being part of a, a regime like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also the fact that she um, she's also using uh, using she knows how massively in love Eris is with her, and she's using that to her advantage as well. Yeah. Um, and it's all wrapped up in that. And the final thing that finally tips Eris over the edge is the is the fact that she expected to sort of inherit the rule of Dawn from her from her father because they don't sort of differentiate between gender in Dawn. Another mm. sort of example of them being a bit more forward thinking. Yeah. Um, but she came across this letter a few years ago where he was writing to his eldest son, her younger brother, promising him the uh, the rules so she feels she's been sidelined there mm-hmm. all that together means Ari says oh, okay then I'm gonna throw my line <laughs> with you yeah and it is it's a fairly big uh, okay then isn't it it's a fairly <laughs> yeah. major life decision made in a poorly lit bedroom with a woman you really want to sleep with asking you to do something I'm not certain mm. there's ever in the history of mankind ever any really good decisions been made in that situation <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. Um, but that that is where we leave that last one. So it looks like she's managed to turn a member of the King's Guard there. Um, I felt like George Martin was really trying to make that feel like it was a tough decision for Ares, and I say, it did reasonably well. But because it's because he because he makes a decision within sort of ten minutes of a conversation. It's very hard to make it feel like he really was pulled in two directions. Very difficult. Yeah, it? it was more like, well, I'm a long way from home. I'm going to be here for a while. Getting my end away. <laughs> yeah. Going to do what it takes, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of like the, uh, the how long it took him to decide to not wear his really heavy cloak and full armour. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Just woke up on the first heat. humid morning and went, well, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> fuck this shit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It does feel like Dawn is the is the the perfect place for a fuck this shit idea to grow. <laughs> so post to it all, I'm just gonna do my thing. Forget about it. It's, it seems a long a long way away. Put there, Westeros and honor, doesn't it? In somewhere like this. Yeah, very much. Okay, let's go back to Westeros then. Back to the um, the more traditional Westeros with Brienne. You can't get more traditional than Brienne's view of knightlyhood and honour. Um, they're going past the what she thinks is probably the ambush site where Sir Cleos Frey got killed. Remember when they got um, uh, shot at with arrows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When she was supposed to be taking Jamie to King's Landing. Yeah. Um, as they're making their way along, Pod tells his tale of his past. This is the one we touched briefly on last week. Yeah. Um, where Pod says that he was sort of passed from night to night as various unfortunate things happened to them all. Yeah. Um, which basically ended in, I think he was with a knight who stole some ham 
and then got hung for it. Yeah. But uh, Lord Tywin sort of recognised Pod's name and pardoned him. Yeah. Strange. Yeah. Yeah, um, it was a really interesting way of making aristocracy like showing how powerful it is in this setting but also showing how it's definitely not a free ticket because he had this name his entire life and nobody gave a crap you know and you know yeah. when that when the house falls all of the power of the name kind of goes away and his father died when he was really young like how the you know the stark name is only really significant for people who still place faith in that system of making decisions and that whole hereditary thing um mm. Yeah, and that's but and now all the power that used to attend it is just gone, you know. Yeah, it's also Brienne also realizes just how bad Pod is at fighting, <laughs> and she's amazed that he survived the Battle of the Blackwater, and she realizes that it's probably because no one thought him worth killing, and that just that sounds I find that an amazing concept in the middle of a massive battle, where sort of people just too busy killing the everybody else that like people just forget about him even in a battle. Yeah, yeah, very much. Like, and I, I, there's a bit of me that likes. I really like Pod for that reason. You know what I mean? He's like, he, he is the butt of all the jokes. He is the least impressive man in Westeros, and he's still alive. And that kind of <laughs> that gives me a bit of hope. You know? Yeah, he's still backing Podrick for the Iron Throne. Absolutely, yeah. Pod for the throne. Team <laughs> hashtag the throne. Team Pod. <laughs> team Pod. <laughs> Yeah, there must be a there must be a campaign slogan we can come up with for Pod. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll think I'll work about that. on it. I'll work on it. Yeah. Um, so we reach Maidenpool, and uh, Randall Tarley, Sam's dad, the the guy who Sam remembers being very horrible to him and treating him like shit and saying you've either got to the wall or I'm going to kill you. Basically, um, he is the boss around here at the moment. <laughs> Bodes well. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And uh, they actually, Brienne nearly gets involved in a fight to the death at the gate, basically over some perceived, some, some sort of injustice which is being delivered to some poor farmers over some eggs. I think it's a, be a strange way to die. It's a strange it be, cause it? to die for. I don't think you yeah. wouldn't put it past George, though, would you? Just, just to have you walk with this woman around Westeros to no discernible purpose, and then she gets killed. Like, well, the interesting thing fuck. is. I, I wouldn't put it past Brienne. I, I honestly think that is the kind. Of, it's per, it does suit her character. She would fight and die for something as stupid as that if that was if she, if she felt it was the right thing to do. Yeah, she's that kind of character. Yeah, she is that kind of character. And it, so I was reading this a little bit through kind of webbed fingers over my eyes, like don't do that, don't do that, don't do Brienne, don't do. I've read so much of your crap, Brienne. Don't die by the side of the road in a. Be yeah. interesting, would you please? <laughs> and she is, so well, look, it's all alright. Yeah, luckily for her, a guy called Sahail Hunt, who she has some kind of past with, we find out more later, mm. um, intervenes and takes her to Randall Tarley. Tarley's doing some delivering justice in down by the docks. Kicking ass um, and taking he's names. He's like some kind of <laughs> he's like some kind of dark Solomon. They're the sort of <laughs> the, these the, these people yeah. keep coming to him with problems. <laughs> Yeah, and, he's, he and it's not like, you know, Solomon in the story, you know, threatens to cut the baby in half in order to get one of the women to prove that she's actually the mother and, and you know, kind of is an interesting exercise in in kind of wisdom and shrewdness and knowing human nature. Not in order to cut a baby in half. But you get the impression that Randall Tarley is the sort of <laughs> bloke who might have read that story and then been like... Oh, so the answer is to go instantly to the most brutal thing imaginable and do it. 
Yeah. Sounds about right. Let's do yeah. that. Let's adjust his system right there. <laughs> yeah. There's a good one um, where he says, there's this guy who's been attacked for uh, over an argument over dice. And the guy's like, I'm an honest man, you know. And he's like, right, let's see the dice. And, and the guy's like, oh, maybe they were a bit... <laughs> maybe they were a bit changed in my favour. <laughs> maybe could be um, that I'm very lucky and that that's repeatable with these dice. But... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, 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 did you, what did you think of Tarly? Because he, I mean, he's very hard, but he seems to be at least trying to be fair to you know there is some sense of justice in what he's doing and it seems that the the general lot i mean the people that brienne talks to outside the gate at the start and the general feeling is that things around there have improved dramatically since he's arrived Mm. because he you know you need sort of a tough guy tough leader yeah to bring some kind of order back to this lawless land now yeah, and you could, in similar circumstances, imagine Ned Stark doing something like that. But the reason that you liked Ned Stark mm. was because you had his internal monologue and you knew what was going on and why mm. he thought it was desirable. Whereas you just see Randall Tarley kicking ass, taking names, chopping off hands, <laughs> removing noses, you know, just in, in this incredibly violent way. And you don't really get to know. And all you do know is that one character you do really like, Sam, was threatened with death mm. by this bloke. Ooh, he's a wrong un. We we well well while they're on the way while they're waiting to speak to Tali, we um Brienne remembers uh this story. It's why she hates Sahail Hunt because she doesn't like this guy. That's Sahail, yeah. the guy who's actually just sort of intervened to save her effectively. Mm-hmm. And it's because um of this. Uh, apparently, when she first went to it was basically, I think was it when she first went to High Garden, and um and all these. Uh, various knights started hitting on her and she was quite surprised because that's never happened to her before because she's so large and ungainly and um, you know she's never drawn much attention from men before and eventually um, it turned out that it was all the bets that had been put on and ever, you had like yeah. a, a a gold coin buying and the winner who basically slept with Brienne would yeah. um would win all the money and it was started by this guy Sir Hyle Hunt so that's why she hates his guts yeah. um, it, t- it turns out when that happened um, it was Tarly who found out yeah. and um, and he didn't exactly let her down lightly he just, like, got her into the into his room and said look this this is this has been happening all the men have been placing bets on you yeah. it's only a matter of time before one of them rapes you so go home and mm. it's, he says it about as sort of carefully as that it just he doesn't really give a toss about her feelings or anything. Yeah. And he actually says he's he's obviously very you know, um, Charlie strikes me as the sort of, especially considering put in the context of how he treated Sam as well. He's got a very rigid view of the world yeah. and things that don't conform to it. He's just got absolutely no time for. Yeah. So he can't he can't he can't deal with his his sensitive and intelligent son. He sends him off to the wall. He can't deal with this woman here who seems to think she's a man. He says yeah. a woman's war is in the birthing bed and sends her on away. Yeah. He just he's just the sort of archetypal. You know, this is the the way the world should be, and anything that isn't the same as that, I've just yeah. got no time for it all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's why he comes off being a bastard, doesn't he? Because you know you're with Brienne, and then he's kind of like, doesn't he say at one point like they'd have, it would have been they would have had the right of it if they'd have raped and killed you, 
and like mm. the idea of any moral worldview that makes that sentence pronounceable you know mm. you're just instinctively repulsed by it right yeah yeah he's um yeah he he doesn't um yeah he he sort of he almost blames Brienne for for putting herself in that position doesn't he mm. rather than blaming them he said you know almost like what are you going to do if you if you turn up wandering around here with a load of men that's what's going to happen is if you know mm. it's kind of like the medieval equivalent of people who say you know you shouldn't have been wearing a short skirt on a night out yeah you know what I mean? yeah exactly it's, and it's that kind of view isn't it yeah but imagine trying to make that argument to all with a terrifying massive broadsword in front of you and still being fucking pig-headed enough to try and pull it off <laughs> instead of just saying it on twitter <laughs> bloody hell <laughs> yeah uh so uh, again, the the meeting with Tali here goes about as well as the last one did for her, um, but in the end, she uh, she heads off down to the stinking goose because she's got this. Remember, she had this tip off about Nimble Dick, and apparently, this is where he hangs out. Yeah. I love the idea of the pub being called the Stinking Goose. <laughs> just the, the just the fact that you know you, you get you get your sign, you got your new pub. Your yeah. sign comes in and it's a goose. You think, oh, I've got a goose, right? We're going to have to give it a name. Something to do. What should we do for goose? Well, the noble goose, the two-headed <laughs> goose, the golden goose, the great goose, the stinking goose. <laughs> 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 They'll be flocking to that then. To get it there, branding to get for the win. Uh, tell you what happened <laughs> was that they they started off calling it the noble goose. And then they had a really, really bad sewer leak out the back. And then every time they heard somebody go, should we go to the goose? Oh, which goose? You know, the stinking goose. They're like, no, oh, no, damn you. <laughs> Do you reckon there was some, like, um, when the stink, when the when the smell was really bad, they were like, oh, this is awful. This, uh, you know, We're going to lose loads of trade. And then one, like, entrepreneurial bright spark who was part of, part part owner said, no, no, we can use this to our advantage. It can be our thing. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, some pubs have, like, you know, table hockey or a dartboard. Ours is the smell. <laughs> Ours is the smell. And we'll, what we'll do is we'll go for a crowd that don't mind bad smells. Eh? Yeah. We'll go for people without noses. Tyrion's on his way there now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so eventually, um, Brienne does meet this guy called Nimble Dick. Um, th- th- Nimble Dick is a, an expert in drawing out a tail and getting money for it, isn't he? He just gives her a little bit of info, uh-huh. gets some money. Gives her a little bit more, gets yeah. some more money. He's, he's just that kind of con man, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I just can't, I can't take anybody seriously if they're called Nimble Dick. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like pliable bollocks. Yeah. Like, no, I'm sorry, it's not going to work, is it? Yeah. Apparently, Nimble Dick knows where Sansa is. He says she's at the Whispers, this sort of old, rundown castle. Ooh. Um, a few miles away. Sounds, made sounds likely. And right, so, yeah, <laughs> sounds legit. Yeah, it? Seems, seems legit. <laughs> like, and that's the thing about this is that like. We're going to go on a journey now with Brienne to a place that we know Sansa isn't. Because we've just been mm. talking about Sansa being at wherever she's at at the moment in the, in the Eyrie. Right? Yeah. So, I, I will confess, this was one of the moments where my frustration with this book spiked. Because I was like, <laughs> George, you've already made me follow people around the fucking countryside going for a walk for many, <laughs> many novels at this point. <laughs> 
at, at least during those things, I had the vague crumb of hope that something would actually happen along the way that forwarded what they wanted and it would be an interesting in terms of plot. But now you're actually... It's its like being mocked. It's like saying, ah, ha, ha, I'm not even <laughs> going to pretend that I'm going to give you some plot now. I'm just going to take her for a walk. Why? Because a thousand pages, that's why i got to fill in with something, haven't I? <laughs> but are you not worried about what's going to happen to Brienne? I mean, she's suspicious here, um, quite rightly. Yeah. But she's like, well, it's a lead's a lead. I may as well go along and see what I see. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I am, yes, because I like Brienne as a character. But at the same time, I back her in a fight against most people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm not really, yeah. you know, either she dies, which wouldn't be a surprise because this is a song of ice and fire, or she survives, in which case I'm like, well, what was the point of that? Yeah. I suppose the thing is as well, you, you'd back her in a fight because we know what she can do, but she's got this track record of constantly being underestimated as well. Yeah. So yeah, you assume it, that it? this may well happen again. She can handle herself. Yeah. Okay, on to uh, someone who can't handle himself, Sam. He's uh, he's on this ship on the way to Bravos. Apparently, um, they go into Old Town, but they've got a connection at Bravos that they've got to make. Mm. Um, it's uh, so he's on this ship. Gilly's terrified because she's never seen the sea before. So the fact that you got to see it and then jump on a ship and this little wooden contraption and then go out into the middle of it obviously mm. would terrify the uh, the yeah. best of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's another element as well. There's um, another another sort of another entry for Randall Tally, Dad of the Year. <laughs> um, <laughs> apparently, when when Sam was five, he thought it's about time he learned to swim, so he threw him into a lake, and oh, Sam hell. sort of just about survived, but has been terrified of water ever since. Do you think there's a part of Randall Tally's head where he genuinely thinks he's doing like? Like, he can't imagine that anybody would find this behaviour shockingly, kind of, inappropriately <laughs> aggressive and unyielding. Do you reckon he's just like, no, that's what you do, isn't it? Like, you know, you just I've, throw yeah, the baby I've, in the I've water no to da- make him swim. Yeah, I've no doubt that when Randall Talley was five, he was thrown in a lake <laughs> and he did just fine. Yeah, so he yeah, assumes yeah. everyone would be like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, isn't it? Like, he's this total genetic freak that actually managed to meet every single physical challenge he ever experienced and survive. And now he's like, anybody doing less than that is somehow weak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the people born rich who can't understand why poor people want more money. <laughs> but it's yeah. fine, it's fine. It's new. Just go and ask your parents. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, Sam's really worried about his future. He's not looking forward to Old Town at all. Still not really clear why. Um, he's very neg- very sort of pessimistic about his chances there. Yeah. But he does think that Ma- Master Raymond's going to enjoy it in Old Town. He thinks that Gilly will be safe because she'll be serving as a sort of waiting woman at, at Horn Hill, which is Tali's home. Yeah. And... Um, and he thinks Darren, who's this uh, this singer, will be happy, sort of wandering the, the because he, apparently he's been told John's made Darren um, the replacement for Yoren, the guy who used to go collecting people to bring up to the wall. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is Darren sings a few songs of daring, gets a few recruits and brings him up to the wall. <laughs> oh, PR, so, PR, how just, yeah. as if people will be like, well, the song was pretty good, so I reckon I'll go. Never mind the fact that I'm <laughs> pledging my life away to freeze my ass off fighting. Unknown <laughs> forces from the beyond. <laughs> Fuck it. The song was brilliant. Yeah. It's like it was that like guitar lick was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> the bridge. Honestly, I could have wept. Um, you know, it's, well, it's like the fact that um, 
the US Army does quite a lot of recruiting through video games. They actually made, yeah. like, I mean, the first video game they made was like 10, 12 years ago now. It was called America's Army. And, and it was literally, it was a recruitment tool. It was like, enjoy this, mm. click here to, to recruit. <laughs> Merciful <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. If you enjoy killing the pixelated men. Yeah. Imagine what it would be yeah. like in full on 4X 3D. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it, we, we get we get quite a lot. I mean, the, the, that's why the whole reason Sam is isn't as excited about this trip as everybody assumes he would have been is just the prime thing is the relationship with his dad, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He's just such a a looming horrific presence in Sam's life yeah. that any thought of going back there um, is terrifying, especially going back there. To tell his dad that he's going to become a maester, which would be another dreadful fate for another sort of no son of mine kind of fate. Yeah, yeah, very much. um, Yeah, and you can just imagine that, can't you? And if he knows that that's what his dad thinks, you know, there's absolutely no chance of negotiation on where the line is for that. Yeah, you know, like, like, uh, dad. You know, I mean, I know, I know you're a bit set in your opinions, but I've been thinking about coming a maester. You just know you're not going to get him going. Do you know what, son? I back you. I, I support you yeah. in the decisions that you make in your life. <laughs> yeah, there's not going to be one of those moments, are there? Sentences like, you'll never hear son, from Randall Tarley. I, yeah, I just wanted you to be happy, son. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all I wanted. All I've ever wanted was for you to come home at the end of the day. Ah! Strings, strings coming. <laughs> Rondal Tarly, modern yeah. father, modern father. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Nope. So, um, so he's, yeah, so that's why he's really worried about it. He also recounts this this visit to uh, the Arbor, which is uh, another part of, uh, uh, I think it's part of the sort of Tyrell uh, uh, lands, and um, he was sent there for a bit of seasoning. He was going to marry some some lord's daughter, but. Because he was so, he did so badly, and he got bullied so badly, they just took him back. And Tarly was just, Randall Tarly was just horrified at how badly his son was dealing with life. Mm. As opposed from, you can understand with Randall Tarly as far as if everything he knows is strength and fighting and is this sort of way of the world, mm. in a similar way to the way Tywin was horrified at sort of Tyrion. Sort of just, just fathers not understanding sons seems to be seems to crop up again and again in this book. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, now, so they continue the journey. They go past this place called Skagos, which is a few islands which are particularly dangerous part of Westeros. Apparently, the uh, the rumor is that there are cannibals on that island, and that they sailed to a neighboring island one sort of year and just massacred the population and ate them all. <laughs> As you do, yeah, and and at that point you're like, oh, I think I've heard of these people before, haven't I? No, weren't they the people who came from? Oh, they're different than those people. Oh, and the other people who did the the horrific thing with the axes and the the no, oh, okay, right, and the people with the babies on the spikes that was different as well, right? Okay, wonderful, great, okay, another group of horrendous wankers. I'll I'll fit them in somewhere in my understanding of the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, now the uh, there's a big storm uh, and uh, Maester Raymond asks to be sort of left up on the deck to enjoy the storm because he's Eamon's really just enjoying a trip. It's mm. typical like 
really old dude. He yeah, just, just can't, can't believe he's out the house. He's just brilliant. Um, <laughs> but there's this really sort of sad moment when um, he falls asleep in the storm and Sam wakes him up and Eamon sort of refers to him as Egg, who is someone he used to know. It's actually um, a, a whole sort of prequel book that you can read on this character. Yeah, yeah. But he refers to Sam as Egg and he says, uh, oh, I had a dream I was old. Um and then sort of like falls back to sleep again, and I thought that was really sad. Actually, yeah. it was really really nice beat. Yeah, it's, it is incredibly sad, and and it's it's weird feeling an emotion, which isn't to do with kind of abject fear or complete disgust for somebody's actions. To actually come across a piece of human warmth and kind of mm. tenderness is a bit sort of oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know. Um, there's also a couple of other things to say about the end of this chapter Uh, there is the the truth about why Gilly is so down comes out Mace Raymond sort of spots it it's basically um, Gilly's baby which they're taking away with them isn't Gilly's baby they swapped them Oh yeah. so Gilly is left with um, Mance, is it Mance Raider's baby or Val's baby, I think it's Mance Raider's baby yeah it is, yeah 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 Um, because of that royal because blood John, thing that Melisandre is yeah. mental for. Exactly, yeah. So so John sort of spirited them away with that. But that means, you know, there's every chance that Gilly's baby is going to get killed by mistake now. Um, John's sort of gambling that when everybody finds out that it's not the real baby, they're not the right baby, they'll, they'll just sort of chill out and let it live. But it's a, quite a gamble to take, and obviously Gilly's distraught about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, very, very um, sad, also, isn't it? And I tell yeah, you, I, tell, yeah. I, I sort of liked the fact that it was um, it was the maester, this old blind fella who noticed this. Doesn't yeah. really bode well for Sam as a political animal in the future, does it? Like he's gone from like masterminding the election of Jon Snow to back to literally being less insightful than a man who can't see and who is convinced that it's eighty years ago. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> good point. <laughs> Um, there's also these sailors talking about how Gilly's bad luck, the wildling on board, and that's they're worried about making it. There's even a bit of dark talk about throwing her overboard. So um, <sighs> Sam can't wait to actually hit land now. <laughs> no kidding, eh? Mm. Um, then the other thing, Sam, that Sam sort of en- almost ends the chapter thinking this, is that uh, he says that he, I think he says it to Darren that um, there are no happy endings. And I just wonder, considering Sammy's, for all his inability to see what's going on with Gilly, probably the one of the most intelligent characters in the book, mm. for that for that kind of character to say that kind of thing, I don't know. I just wonder. It felt a bit like a warning from George. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a little bit meta, isn't it? Um, yeah. A little bit sort yeah. of, yeah, you know, I'm gonna. Hmm. I'm going to let you know that it's all going to go to shit, but stick around for the next three volumes of the book. Yeah. Well, that's where we round off for today. Mm. Um, the, the the next uh, the next part, which we'll be doing for next week, is um, if you read from the next chapter, which is Jamie talking about uh, Lord Tywin entered the city, uh, read as far as a chapter called The Queen Maker. It's another, uh, what did we call them? Midlogs. <laughs> Another another one so, from a character uh, we don't know yet. 
Yeah, I assume. Yeah, I assume mm-hmm. so. So, um, so that's what we're reading for next week. Uh, Dave, have you enjoyed this this stretch? Um, I have. Yes. I mean, I, it's it's fairly solid, sort of middle of the book stuff, isn't it? There's been nothing really kind of blow you away, stunning. But I'm a bit of a geek for the sort of internal politics of King's Landing, and and you know, getting to meet Randall Tarley. I feel like he's going to be an important character. Everybody kind of talks about him as as something of a a force, you know. Um, hmm. and so I'm um, interesting enough, and a little bit more about Pod, and a little bit more about Brienne. Just all kind of like pretty solid stuff. I haven't been blown away by any of it, but um, <laughs> but I mean, again, given the reputation this book has, I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> well, we shall see if it catches fire in the next part. Yeah. But uh, until then, enjoy. All right. And, uh, and we'll speak next time. We'll do. Later's. <laughs>